I'm Dr. Bill Thomas, and this is the Aging Literacy Podcast, and I'm joined in rep studio, as always, with the renowned Nate Silas Richardson. And I say renowned because I think you're renowned. That's what I think. So, meaning people used to know me, then they forgot me, then they knew me again? Is that renowned? That renowned. would be renowned. Or you could be renowned. <laughs> What's renowned even? What's the, it, how does, how does think, that word work? I think it just means you have a lot of noun, <laughs> and that, that means you're really amazing and incredible. And I'm just going to start the podcast today by saying that I watched Nate play an extraordinary show uh, last Saturday night, a duo act with the lead singer from John Brown's Body, and uh, it blew the doors off. Hey, awesome. Yeah, I, I loved, love loved the show. So nice, nice. I dragged well, him thanks, off, dragged him off the stage because he's so renowned, and now he's doing the Aging Literacy Podcast. And today, Nate, we have a very special guest. I'm really excited. We're going to talk about sex again. I think. Well, wh- why not? <laughs> <laughs> and we hear her laughing in the background. I would like to welcome Christina Pierpaoli Parker to the Aging Literacy Podcast. Hello, Christina. How are you? Hi, guys. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat about stuff that really just impassions me. Absolutely. Now, Christina, I believe because we were chatting a little before we started recording, you you have a bit of a name change in the mix that's happening for you right now. <laughs> would, you mind, would you mind jumping in on that? Oh, sure. So, as we were chatting about before, I am, gosh less than six months into marriage. Wow. Talk about, uh, yeah, a big developmental change. Uh-huh. Um, so my maiden name was Pierpaoli. I'll put a little stank on it. Pierpaoli. Oh, oh nice. Yeah. I'm hungry for the meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> and I really wanted to make sure that was part of my uh, my name moving forward because, one, it's just so unique, but, two, it, um, it translates, to my knowledge, to Peter and Paul. Mm-hmm. Pierre, meaning Peter, and Paoli, meaning... Paul. Um, so it's Christina Pierpaoli Parker is my maiden name. Nice and English and American sounding. You've got it all. You've got the, to- yeah. Christina, you've got the total package. <laughs> well, you so. haven't seen how I look, but well. I'm just teasing. But it's good to have in, a, I'm, I'm currently living in Alabama. And so oh, no sometimes kidding. when I introduce myself with Pierpaoli, it's um, yeah, a little bit of a challenge. A little overwhelming. <laughs> Maybe we'll take you to Queens and you won't, it won't be quite as difficult. Oh, don't tease me. That's where my parents hail from. So that would be wonderful. How did I know? (laughs) So we're really glad to have you with us today because uh, one of the things I know that we share in our view of uh, life and aging is that the good things in life are the good things in life also in aging. Yes. That aging doesn't take away the good things in life in some ways transforms them, it, it alters them, it shows us enhances new, them. enhances them. So you've done a lot of work with some of the pleasures of life, and in mm-hmm. particular, mm-hmm. sex. Sex. Let's talk about it. 
Uh, how'd you get started doing this kind of work? Well, I should be clear that I don't do sex work. I study <laughs> sex in older adults. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. I just thought it would be important to clarify. Thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity to clarify. So uh, it's it's a fascinating story, like most things. So I was a Killam Fellow at the University of Toronto a few years ago, and Killam is uh, an umbrella fellowship beneath Fulbright, mm-hmm. so Fulbright scholarships. Killam is uh, typically awarded, conferred to undergraduates. And so I was awarded one such fellowship and used it to study at the University of Toronto, where because of just how Kismet operates, I met Dr. Charles Emlett, who actually has been to your Disrupt Aging tour. You have Yay! a picture with him. <laughs> awesome! Anyway, so I met Dr. Emlett during my time there through some odd and indescribable chain of events, he sort of discovered that one of my clinical and academic mm-hmm. interests was aging. Mm-hmm. And at the time, he was a Fulbright Fellow, interested in understanding the lived experiences of older mm-hmm. adults aging successfully with HIV disease. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so during my time as a fellow, I accompanied Charlie, as he is affectionately called, around Toronto doing these semi-structured, in-depth interviews Mm -hmm. with 30-some-odd older adults Mm -hmm. who self-identified as aging successfully with HIV disease. Mm -hmm. And so it was just sort of through that experience that not only did my interest in aging grow, but so did this sub-specialization in aging and and sexuality. And so to understand and to contextualize why HIV among older adults is an important uh, issue, you have to understand, you know, the biopsychosocial features of sexuality. So you were running around Toronto with Charlie doing these interviews, and I know there's probably papers, you've probably written papers about this, but what I'm going to ask you is, What's the most important thing you learned from people who had been diagnosed with a life-limiting illness who are now experiencing aging? Successfully. Yeah. Like, woo! Mind blown. So So what did they teach you? What's the most important thing you learned from those interviews? The first thing I want to say before I answer that question is why that in and of itself is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why aging is so incredibly rich as a field of study is because I don't have to tell you that in the last, you know, in the 20th century, we've nearly doubled the human lifespan, which means that we now have the opportunity to answer questions our own biology once precluded. Right? Mm-hmm. So right. HIV is a very good example just by virtue of increased longevity but also treatment advances. And so there's a whole host of clinical, academic, and policy questions that we are now able to indulge and answer because we're living longer. So that's just... So what people said to you, you know, yeah, I'm HIV positive. Yeah, I'm getting older, and it's working for me. Tell me about what were they bringing to the table when you were having these conversations? So really what it boils down to is resilience. And, you know, well, what does that mean? It's something that psychologists and anthropologists and social workers are really trying to operationalize and understand. But anecdotally, you know, in my experience with these older folks, here's what it boiled down to. Yes, I have HIV, and I am aging with it. It is 
inconvenient, but it is also my largest blessing. And ultimately, what they shared with us was that they owned their story. Mm-hmm. They owned their traumas, they owned their experiences, their experiences and their traumas did not own them. Mm. And so they were able to make meaning out of the sort of chaos, the suffering, the confusion surrounding, you know, this diagnosis, which at one point really was a death sentence. You know, now, of course, it's sort of conceptualized as this chronic disease that can be managed like, you know, diabetes or, you know, arthritis. But consistently, the people who were thriving were the ones who used their experiences to enhance their lives, either through improved self-care health and diet regimens, community service, generativity, and storytelling. Sounds like a very classic case of the blessing in disguise. I've seen so many cases of people that face some life-threatening illness or some accident, and they come out the other side with this new, renewed vigor and appreciation and... uh, Resilience, even so, and I'd I like to. That. I'd like to connect this to some work that Nate does. He does a another podcast called "The Power of Song," and yes. uh, so songwriters who write songs that they're proud of actually do a lot of the same work. Wouldn't you think, Nate? Is there anything from "Power of Song" that connects to you on taking a story and generating sort of meaning out of the story? What comes to mind? For me, that feels like a big leap, but... Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a big leap. Look, I mean, when songwriters are at their peak, they're taking lived experience, filtering it in a very creative way, and what's coming out are expressions of meaning that aren't like, on Tuesday, I went to the store. They're filtering no. it, so they're choosing what to focus Exa- on. That, and that's what they're, I'm saying about the HIV. Yes. The now, folks with HIV, you it. see what I'm saying? So, yes, absolutely. So what they're saying is, I've got all of this, and I'm going to put my focus here. Right. And I'm going to pull these pieces together, and that's where you get the song that right. isn't about right. the thing. Because those are the most boring songs right. in the world, right? Right, right. So, I know that you uh, have done some interviews with the Bar Brothers, mm-hmm. and some of their songs, I think, are heart wrenching. Yes, and they got to come from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. For example, even the darkness has arms. <laughs> this one that comes to mind. That's right, man. <laughs> keeping it on, keeping it on, and I know I like it, but what's that? Someone's over it. So, making meaning out of narrative, we are, yeah, got you there. Yeah. So, where'd the sex come from? Well, yeah, so, and I want to actually back up for a second. So, yes, in summary, the the people who made meaning out of what could just as easily be perceived as a curse or burden were certainly the ones who thrived and are thriving with HIV. And there's a reason for that. Uh, and I'm sure you know of Laura Karstensen's work sure. at, the Univ- at Stanford, and she knows she talks about socio-emotional selectivity and this Mm -hmm. sort of idea that as our time horizons shrink, we are more focused on cultivating meaningful experiences and social relationships. And so quite essentially, it boils down to 
I don't have time for nonsense. You know, it's like you can imagine an older person sort of looking at their watch and saying, all right, I don't have time for this. What's important? I think there's probably a lot of people in Hawaii that are saying that the last couple of weeks. (laughs) Yeah. So um, (laughs) just recently before this podcast was recorded, they had the false alarm of a nuclear attack in Hawaii. And it shortened everybody's horizon for about a half an hour. Yeah. (laughs) Boom. Yes. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And so we, we find that, of course, organically, naturally uh, in older adults. We also find it, for example, in children, adolescents, and young adults who are diagnosed with a terminal illness. So there really is some sort of uh, biological underpinning towards uh, orienting towards positive, meaningful experiences in the face of, uh, of limited time horizons. But anyway, so where did the sex come from? Yeah. <laughs> so, it kind of creeps in. <laughs> so all all sorts of places well, you don't expect it I'm, to. I, yeah, I'm, I'm by no means a Freudian. I think Freud is wrong about a lot of things. Yeah. I think he's right about a lot of things. And he's definitely right about sex being everywhere all the time. And yeah. so there's, there's just that explanation. The but, DNA is very big on it. The yeah. DNA yeah. thinks it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's how, it's it's how you deal. get things done. <laughs> right. So, you know, we're, we're, we're talking to these older adults about HIV and sexual health. And what you find is that no one talks about it. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. find that no one talks about older adults as sexual beings. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, this is a sort of a, uh, an essentialist argument, but... Basically, in this silence, we're seeing the proliferation of sexually transmitted diseases mm-hmm. right. in later life. Right. Right. I'm aware of this as a clinician, but from a public health point of view, is there yes. any is there any like top line number or big thing that really drives it home to you that sexually transmitted diseases are an increasing issue in later life? Yes. A few things. Compare it to younger folks, okay? Older adults know less about STDs. They underestimate their risk of infection. So, for example, there was a study done recently in 2017 that uh, older adults uh, who have the highest risk are also the same group of people who most underestimate their risk. Mm -hmm. So they tend to underestimate their risk of infection and they practice safe sex less often than their younger counterparts. But here's the statistic or two statistics that really just get me shaken in my boots. So mm-hmm. This is from the CDC, and I think probably these data are from 2014, 2017. So a little bit dated, but the best we have for right now. And they reported that older adults over 50 represent 15% of new, so of incident HIV infections. Okay? Whoa. By 2020, upwards of 70% of persons living with HIV will be 50 and older. Mind blown. Yeah, yeah. mind blown, right? But, and so we're seeing similar patterns across mm. other sexually transmitted diseases like chlamydia and gonorrhea, mm. primary, secondary syphilis. And so, you know, what's going on? Well, one, treatment advances like antiretroviral mm-hmm. therapy right. are enabling already infected adults to live longer and to achieve lifespans, you know, commensurate with those of their uninfected counterparts. But two, the more interesting part, so that inflates prevalence because people right. are just living longer with the disease. But the more interesting part is that there are just new infections all together. So the number of new infections, whether it's HIV or gonorrhea or chlamydia, are just increasing among mm-hmm. older adults. That's mm-hmm. the fascinating part, and that's where our work begins. So tell me, you have a megaphone, and all older people in America are standing in front of you, and you've got your little megaphone, 
And you're going to say, here's what you need to know about sexually transmitted diseases in this part of life. So what I would say is that, um, number one, it means that we have to recognize that sex doesn't retire after 60, and that the statistics that we're seeing aren't happening in a vacuum. They aren't just emerging out of the ether. They represent complex interactions of mm-hmm. biopsychosocial factors, okay? Mm-hmm. So the first thing I would say is, number one, we need to recognize, you know, older adults as sexual beings. And, you know, Nate, right here, I'm thinking a little Barry White. You're saying yes to to sex sex and the big and 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 what? I'm saying yes to sex. I'm saying yes, we need to recognize that older adults are sexual beings. And we also need to recognize that sex is a lifelong developmental process that actually improves with age. There's very good research being done currently and published that demonstrates sexual satisfaction increases over the lifespan, partially because our time horizons are decreasing. And so we really have to savor the experiences that we have right here, right now. But another part of it is, gosh, you've just spent your whole life collecting data on yourself. You know what you like. You know what you dislike. You know what your partner likes. You know what you need. And you're able to express those Mm -hmm. needs in a clearer, more authentic, and less awkward way. So that's part of it. But here's really the take-home message. We all, including practitioners, okay, but older adults themselves, need to sort of pause, assess, recognize and reflect on our biases, okay? So what, as clinicians, as providers, what are our attitudes and beliefs about life like sexuality? Where do they come from? You know, how do they serve us? And why should we challenge them? And, you know, here's why this is an issue, you know? So the sort of idea that older adults are asexual trickles down into clinical practice, Mm -hmm. right? So, for example, physician-initiated sexual history is suboptimal among older adults. And now, this is despite recommendations from the CDC that requires all patients to receive comprehensive STI education, okay? And so one, and there are many studies, but one particularly powerful study revealed that very few men, so about 38% and even fewer women, 22% had discussed sex with a physician since 50, age 50, and it's sort of consistent with findings that there's an inverse relationship of age and frequency of sexual health discussions. Mm -hmm. And so older adults currently don't feel like there is a space for them that recognizes and affirms their sexuality, which um, can perpetuate dysfunction and and disease. And increase the risk of disease. Exactly. Got it. So sex is a lifelong part of the human experience, not to mention every other living creature on earth. Um, (laughs) Number two, that ageist bias and ageist prejudice leads people to underestimate risk and not educate themselves and do some things that put them uh, actually at higher risk for infection. And then third, you got to talk about it. You got to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's it's natural for people to want to be private about it. I think, and I, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't talk about it, but I guess maybe part of what I want to say is that let's acknowledge the reasons for people's perhaps silence. Well, I, and I, I, that, I can I say because I agree with you. 
But that's true at every age. Well, definitely. Because if but, you've got teenagers in the house. Absolutely. I mean, yes, you can talk to them, but they're not like, gee, yeah. I want to talk about sex no, with I'm dad. No, I'm not trying to explain why older people don't talk about it. I'm trying to explain why people don't talk right. about it because it's an sex intimate thing. It's an yeah. intimate thing between two people, and, sure. you know, we naturally compartmentalize it into a very private little zone in our lives, and so we don't, we don't talk about it as so, much as but we— But I think the, sure, the, sure. the point Christine is making is that agreed and— your doctor needs to... Well, that would seem a safe space, but the doctor's not talking about it because the doctor's right. got the... Bias. Ages bias on. Well, and that, and they're just not trained. So true. even if and when doctors do recognize the value of taking some sexual history, they often aren't trained in, in how to do that. And that's just symptomatic of larger issues that geriatrics and gerontology has broadly. You know, for example, there was this semi-recent New York Times article that I think it was entitled, like, Where Are All the Gerontologists? And the thesis of their argument was gerontology and geriatrics is one of the few medical specialties contracting as demand increases. And so, so it's like, if we're not getting general education about aging, imagine how much less people are getting about aging and sexuality. <laughs> and so that's across domains. You know, that's in medicine, that's in psychology, that's in social work and pharmacy. So it's a real, it's beyond just the, 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 the stereotyping and ageism. It really is a systemic issue that stems from silence and ignorance, I think. Yeah, and I just want to say, here at the Aging Literacy Podcast, we're all about the info. Yeah, getting right. get the info. Shining that light right. into the darkness. So my question for you is... Yes. Where do people go if they're listening to this podcast and they're like, oh, dang, I should, I should find out more about this? What do you recommend? I would say start with asking your physician. It's a good opportunity to model to your physician that you feel comfortable talking about it, and it's a good opportunity for the practitioner to enlarge their clinical repertoire. So that's the first thing I'll say. But if you're... If you are, by disposition, sort of feeling uncomfortable talking about that, there are a bunch of resources online. The first is, shameless plug, my blog. And also also your blog. You know, I, I share these posts with you guys, too. So the Changing Aging blog platform is a mm-hmm. great place to go. Mm-hmm. Can you repeat your platform? Sure. It's um, Engaging for Psychology Today. The whole title is Engaging a Millennial's Thoughts on Age and Aging. How do I find it? You can search Christina Pierpally Parker. Okay. Are you the only person on earth with this name? Yeah, Christina Pierpally Parker is the only, only yeah, one there's I know. What if, they, what if one week from now they're thinking, oh, I, I really want to check that out, but I can't remember what her name was, and and then the moment's Perfect. gone. Is there is there an easier one to remember? Um, you can go to Psychology Today and search aging, and they've organized blogs according to subject. Cool. Yay. So those are good leads. I have one more question oh, before we wrap. We got a question. So uh, Nate I, have a quick, I have a quick question. What yeah. about the, I mean, for me, throughout my life, my MO is if I'm beginning an intimate relationship, I always want to just get tested first so I know that yeah. I'm cool. Uh, and, of course, I want my partner to do that as well. What's uh, sure. Isn't that enough? Isn't that something that everyone should be doing? Is that something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm just so kind of surprised that hasn't come up yet. Yeah. So number one, I'm always, and I think any responsible, competent sex advocate or educator will recommend testing. You don't need to get tested every day, but you should get tested, especially as you start 
a new intimate relationship. So that's part of it, right? Except that presupposes that healthcare providers will offer that to older folks. And what we find is that is often not the case. So if a 20-something-year-old comes into the doctor's office, the research demonstrates that they are like 10 times more likely to ask, get asked questions about their sexual history and be offered the opportunity to get tested. In many cases, that's sort of a liberating statistic to know because that really does mean that you can't rely on healthcare systems to get the care that you need. You need to be your own advocate. And so as an older adult, you need to stand, unfortunately, but in, again, it could be unfortunate or it could be liberating and empowering and say, hey, listen, uh, I'd like to get tested for X, Y, and Z. Uh, of course, these, these tests aren't um, part of a routine, you know, metabolic blood panel, but it's something that you can ask for. And actually, the CDC, which, by the way, is another fabulous resource that older adults should check out, just for some um, some statistics about STDs and ways of managing and preventing them, as well as the National Institute on Aging, um, the CDC has proposed that testing for HIV adopt an opt-out model such that uh, at baseline, everyone, including adults over the age of 50, is being tested for HIV unless they opt out. That, to my knowledge, is still in the process of trying to be implemented. I'm not sure that there are successful models of that around the country yet, but that has been proposed. So to answer your question, that is a necessary but not sufficient Step. So testing is a part of it. Negotiating condom use with your partner is a part of it. A lot of boomers really don't use condoms because they were raised in a time of recreational drug use and sex where penicillin was treating things like syphilis. And so many older adults sort of have uh, a skewed identification with risky sexual behavior. So, And you don't have pregnancy to worry about past the age of... And, yeah, add the availability of erectile dysfunction medications in the climate of, you know, shifting divorce and dating patterns in later life when menopause hits and pregnancy ends, and you've got this incredibly fascinating and rich intersection of variables. So and people are saying it's party time. Yeah. Another big thing is, you know, there are systemic reductions in estrogen and testosterone, which can make anal and vaginal mucosa thin and reduce vaginal lubrication. And so that's a problem because it can create tears during sexual activity that can facilitate viral entry. And so lubrication, Mm -hmm. (laughs) so use, you know, use condoms, you know, use lubrication, um, make sure, of course, that it's consensual, get tested and talk to your doctor, but also enjoy it. Enjoy. Mm. You know, I think there's a lot of focus, especially in later life on this performance model where it's all sort of genitally driven, but we know that sex doesn't just include intercourse, right? And I think the more interesting non-intercourse options we put on the menu for older adults, the less pathology and dysfunction we're going to see. Well, I have to say, this has been a great ride. <laughs> We've gone. Was it good for you, Bill? It was good. <laughs> and I'm happy. That's awesome. Nice. And uh, I just want to say, Christina, the fact that you would take time out of your day to join us and to add your knowledge to the knowledge of the people who listen to the Aging Literacy Podcast, we're really grateful to you for that. And I'm Thank hoping you for the opportunity. I'm hoping it won't be the last time you come back in. 
Do you guys have plans to be down in Birmingham anytime soon for the tour? We never know. Not, <laughs> they just send us the dates. They, and they just say, get on the bus, and yeah. the wheels go round and round. <laughs> And that's, that's what happens. <laughs> well, that would be a thrill. So I look forward to seeing uh, the next few sites. That would be incredible. Nice. Excellent. Well, we'll see you. So, Christina uh, Perpauli-Parker, thank you so much for yes, joining thank us. Thank you for joining us. and Thank you for having me. I'm Dr. Bill Thomas. And I'm Nate Silas Richardson. And we will see you down the road. Aging Literacy Podcast is made possible by Minka Homes and Communities. To learn more about Dr. Thomas's latest innovation, visit myminka.com. We would like to thank the University of Southern Indiana and AARP for their continued partnership in our pilot, Magic, a multi-ability, multi-generational, inclusive community project. Thanks also to the innovative minds at Omni Labs, amplifying human presence using telepresence robots. And Holiday Retirement, named Best Senior Living by SeniorAdvisor.com and Caring.com. The Aging Literacy Podcast is recorded in Ithaca, New York at Rep Studio, home of the microphone. <laughs> <laughs>